just flames are pouring from the buildings now. There's cars toppled, buildings entirely just crushed and crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I I really need to leave. So the fences inform me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I I see some people running now. In the opinion of this reporter, if this nation, or in fact the world, ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. Episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, the official podcast of FirestormFan.com and the Aquaman. <clears throat> That's enough out of you, irredeemable gimp boy. Back in the box. Back in the box. <laughs> Greetings and salutations. I am Diablo Frank, your host for the Fodiator and Whipcord Podcast. As you may have surmised, Shagagaga never actually left my basement bondage dungeon when he visited a few months back. And now, if my partner in crime has secured Rob Kelly in his remote mountain cabin in the Poconoles, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Count Druncula. The package is secured. I convinced Rob Kelly that I had an extra ticket to the Hollywood premiere of the Star Wars The Force Awakens. And he foolishly agreed to meet me at a parking lot near Boston Logan Airport. And while I was scrambling for the non-existent tickets, I said, hey, do me a favor. Smell this. Tell me if you think it smells like chloroform. And boom, 20 seconds later, he was in the trunk of my car. When he awakens, I don't think he's going to like what's being forced upon him. No, no, he will not. Well, folks, I think we can all agree that 150 episodes of Aquaman and Firestorm is just way too much. Honestly, the show probably jumped the shark more than 70 episodes ago. To help write this runaway train, Diablo Frank and I are shilling for the real stars of Aquaman and Firestorm comics. None other than your favorites, Slipknot and the Human Flying Fish. But before we celebrate those premier A-list villains, we need to mention our sponsors. The Fire & Water Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got for us, Frank? I'm recommending Showcase Presents Super Friends Trade Paperback Volume 1. That is a great pick. It's by E. Nelson Bridwell, Rick Estrada, Ramona Fraden, and many others, all under a cover by Alex Toth. Don't miss these tales based on the hit animated TV series Super Friends from issues 1 through 34. 
Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, The Flash, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and other heroes battle the Riddler, the Time Trapper, and others in these all-ages stories. Now, I personally picked this up because I have an interest in international superheroes, and the Global Guardians were introduced individually and as a team in this series. But you also have some really cool stories with folks like the Super Foes we're going to talk about later in the episode. We're going to offer a brief synopsis of a two-part human flying fish story, but I didn't go into enough detail to spoil it if you want to pick up the book itself. Uh, This is an excellent remedy for modern comics. It's light fun, but with enough stakes that you don't feel like you're reading kid stuff. Uh, A real sense of humor about itself and a self-awareness. 448 pages. List price of $19.99. In-stock trades price $7.99. That's 60% off. It's a steal. I'm going with a new collection that just came out last week, and it's Suicide Squad Volume 2, The Nightshade Odyssey. This is from that legendary run of Suicide Squad written by John Ostrander with art by Luke McDonnell. This trade collects issues 9 through 16, plus Justice League International issue 13 and the Doom Patrol Suicide Squad special. That's 272 full-color pages of excellence for a retail price of $19.99. But right now, InStock Trades has it on sale for $10.99. That's a 45% discount. You cannot beat that deal for the issues in this collection. These are just great stories. And you can probably guess why I picked this collection. Because Suicide Squad issue 9 is a Millennium tie-in issue. And if you've been following my Secret Origins podcast, you know I eat, sleep, and breathe Millennium. So, Frank, what can you tell us about human flying fish? Left to my own devices, probably not very much. (laughs) Thankfully, there's no greater authority on the human flying fish than Rob Kelly. So I've adapted several of his posts from the Aquaman Shrine over the years into one dramatic reading on the subject. This installment of Know Your Aquaman Villains focuses on a finny foe that has returned to tangle with Aquaman in several different eras, but has never quite managed to attain the level of Black Manta and Ocean Master. Let's see if we can figure out why. Hint, it's the name in the costume. The Human Flying Fish first appeared in Adventure Comics number 272, cover dated May 1960, but according to Mike's Amazing World DC Comics, you'll have to set your Omni for March 31st to pick up your brand spanking new story by Robert Bernstein and Ramona Fraden fresh off the spinner rack. This tale starts off the Atlantic coast one day in an abandoned lighthouse, where two men watched through binoculars as Aquaman foiled a speedboat full of smugglers through a strange kind of fish telepathy that commanded a school of whales to box in the robbers. One of the observers was a brutish fellow named Vic Bragg, ex-champion swimming star and half of a criminal team who planned to commit acts of sea piracy, but saw that Aquaman and Aqualad were likely to stop them. The other half of the team, a Dr. Krill, came up with an idea to perform an experimental operation on Bragg, which would give him superpowers perfectly suited to thwart the Aquatic Avenger. Most specifically, the ability to take the fight out of Aquaman's element and into the sky. The duo fly in a helicopter to a hospital ship, where Bragg hangs off the side of the chopper with a Tommy gun to hijack the vessel. The medical staff is forced to aid Dr. Krill for hours of unethical surgery, where they gasp as Bragg's lungs are converted into gills, and never mind the smell. Bragg was left in an induced coma for days, and required months in his hideout to recuperate. But the payoff will be worth waiting for. Eventually, Bragg donned a colorful... Some would say asinine costume, and tested the mind-blowing extent of his powers by springing out of the bay to, gasp, snatch a seagull out of the air with his bare mitt. Boys, you're watching a miracle. Get ready to clean up a fortune. Days later, Aquaman and Aqualad are overseeing a salvage job for a steamship company when suddenly, the human flying fish swoops in and grabs a cash box, propelling himself out of the water and into a nearby helicopter. Aqualad is despondent, and Aquaman realizes that he simply has to outthink this new super-powered crook. A few days later, Aquaman supervises the raising of an idol from the ruins of an ancient sunken temple. Suffering sharks! That flying criminal is back! And he's heading for the idol with a crowbar! 
Ten seconds later, the world's biggest ruby was loosed, and the human flying fish leapfrogged high over Aquaman's sea creature guards. However, Aquaman got one of his octopus pals to whip him into the air like a calamari slingshot, hold the marinara. Brag had grabbed the rope line trailing behind his escape copter, and thought projected, Dr. Krill, quick, take me up, Aquaman is right behind me. Krill responded, but not before the King of the Seven Seas had reclaimed the ruby. Blast it! I pulled this job for nothing, yet I should be grateful. He almost got me. Aquaman had already been outthinking the human flying fish's advantages, and though Bragg sensed that the Sea King was laying a trap for him, Dr. Krill pressured him into seeking uranium supposedly dropped from a plane just the following morning. The human flying fish swallowed the bait. Now to hook him. In the air! As Vic Bragg broke the surface, he struck living high-tension wires made up of electric eels. Dr. Krill ordered his helicopter to descend and pick up Bragg so he wouldn't be captured, but his fuel tank was soon ruptured by the sword-like bills of sailfish under Aqua Command. Aqualad finally made himself useful by mockingly noting, By the way, friend, the box you uncovered was empty. Yes, we might say the box was bait, and the human flying fish fell for the bait. Now let him try flying over prison walls. For all the wonders that Aquaman can claim under his domain, his smack talk is sloshy as puke soup. Ah well, nobody said the Sword of Atlantis needed a rapier sharp wit. Sure, there was Blackjack and the Electric Man, two powerful baddies who faced Aquaman more than once. Both of them were supervillains in their own way. The credit must be given to the, stop laughing, human flying fish, who managed to beat both Black Mana and Ocean Master to be the first classic-style supervillain to encounter the Silver Age Aquaman. For some reason, writer Robert Bernstein chose not to use the human flying fish again for the rest of his run on Aquaman. Bragg must have been in front of a real hanging judge because he didn't appear again for 16 years. It took writer and DC Comics walking encyclopedia E. Nelson Bridwell to dig HFF out of the mothballs and use him in the first issue of Super Friends, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. If you have your subscription copy sent to the mailbox at the Lake House, it'll arrive on August 26, 1976. Not only did Bridwell bring Fish back, but he gave him a kid sidekick named Sardine. In a two-part story, the human flying fish is part of a team of villains and respective sidekicks that attack the super friends one by one. Turns out there's trouble all over the world, including under the seas, which Arthur takes care of. The human flying fish is attacking a scientific base underwater, and we're treated to this wonderful piece of non-ironic dialogue from one scientist to another. Aquaman stopped him the first time, but the human flying fish is still as vicious and ruthless as ever. Aquaman shows up and opines... If it isn't my old friend, the flying fish, I'm sure the warden will be glad to put you in a nice damp cell. Aquaman, you're still no Charles Barkley, but that's better at least. HFF attempts to bolt by flying away, but Aquaman brings him down with a gaggle of real flying fish who force him back down. Vicious and ruthless indeed. While defeated, HFF managed to get away with an assist from Sardine. Suddenly, the Super Friends trouble alert starts going off like crazy all over the world, causing them to have to split off to take care of all the crises. While Aquaman uses his real sword fish to dismantle a diabolic robot model, the Super Foes have taken over the Hall of Justice and the Penguin prepares to kill an imprisoned Batman and Robin. But having a kid sidekick ultimately doesn't work out as the Junior Super Foes revolt at the escalation of violence. Winnie and Marvin show up to convince all the youngsters to never trust a villain over 30 and rebel against their mentors, which they do. They help the Super Friends defeat the bad guys and are promised a good word in their future court dates. Better hope they don't get the same judge Brad got last time. While Sardine was never seen again, clearly Bridwell thought there was potential in human flying fish. He used the same set of bad guys in a children's book published around the same time called Super Friends, The Revenge of the Super Foes, featuring an all-new story. Using a telepathic device, HFF causes Sea Life to turn on the Guardian of the Deep, whose strength so far outstrips Bragg's that a fair fight was out of the question. However, Aquaman overturns the ship HFF was operating out of, the device is lost, and Bragg escapes once again via helicopter. The Super Foes eventually take over Wayne Manor as their own base, but the Super Friends soon retook it. The Finn Felon was wielding a red sword that looked like a fish spine, but by this point he'd so completely become a creature of the sea, Aquaman was able to command his meek surrender through telepathy. Despite this multimedia blitz, the human flying fish once again was relegated to the dustbin of DCU history. He did not get a listing in Who's Who, the definitive director of the DC Universe, despite more than qualifying for inclusion. Three appearances in a children's book? Come on!
HFF did not, er, surface again until 2007, a 30-year gap, when writer Tad Williams brought us a new version of the character in Aquaman, Sword of Atlantis number 54. Artist Sean McManus depicted him with a pair of limp yellow loogie-looking things on his back that, when activated, carried HFF aloft like a hummingbird. His updated look ditched the white stripes and made more use of a deeper shade of purple. HFF's suit was also covered in patches like a race car driver, advertising the company he now worked for, the nefarious Tri-Dent Industries. This human flying fish is a hired gun whose task is to kidnap the then-current Aquaman, Arthur Joseph. Despite the lack of personal vendetta, this version of the fish is a much tougher customer and accomplishes his task. He drags Arthur Joseph to a hidden lab and delivers him to the ultimate big bad, Vandal Savage. Fish has been fed a lot of lies about his employer's motivations and believes that all they really want to do is get a ransom for Arthur Joseph. But when everything goes to hell and bullets start flying, Cal Durham points out to HFF that this is all much worse than what he thought. After three total appearances, the human flying fish took off, not to be seen again. Aquaman's Sword of Atlantis was canceled with the following issue, so Tad Williams never got the chance to bring him back. That was a shame for a number of reasons. We learned that the HFF scene here is also named Bragg, which suggests that this is the same guy from all those years ago. I would have loved to have seen this guy's backstory explored. What's he been doing all these years? Was he in jail? If so, you'd imagine he'd be pretty mad at Aquaman. There's no reason why the human flying fish can't make another comeback in the New 52. Sure, the name is still completely ungainly and the costume doesn't exactly inspire fear, but I'd love to see him re-added to Aquaman's rogues gallery. Count Dracula, why don't you discuss your experiences with the human flying fish? Probably through the Aquaman shrine, because when I was first digging into DC Comics, I, I liked Aquaman and I wanted to know more about his rogues gallery, such as it is. And lo and behold, here's this character who stands out bright and shiny as the human flying fish. Uh, I'm sure I rolled my eyes a little bit, but he was always a character that I, I, I couldn't crack. I was like, there's got to be a way of making this character work. It's just, I don't like the name and I don't like the look, but if there's anything more to him than that, if there is anything to the concept, then I would like to find something there. If it's like changing his name to something more like a a mythological hybrid creature that doesn't sound like human flying fish, uh, if it's giving him some other type of motivation where he he like tried to be a hero and he was just so bad at it that he just became spiteful and evil, I don't know. I've given it a little bit of thought. You know, if you go back to the genus of the flying fish, it's Fodiator. And I was thinking about, well, maybe, like you said, you could make him something more of a, a creature of the deep, maybe turn him into a semi-monster or something like that. And then I realized that I'm just being an idiot. And I'm I'm doing the whole Charybdis thing where nobody's ever going to want to say Fodiator. And <laughs> I, I look at the internet and there's actually a fair amount of toy commissions. They, several people have made their own figures of the human flying fish. As Rob's noted, the human flying fish was, I think, the first villain of the Silver Age, like the classic costumed villain to fight Aquaman. But I don't think there's any way to legitimize him. So I think that the best thing to do is own the ridiculousness of it. Let him be the human flying fish. Let him have a ridiculous costume. Make him sort of the Batrock of the Aquaman universe, where part of the fun of the character is that he's a guy who looks silly, who but, but that's the thing, though. If you look at the stories, they always play him straight. He's like, I think, a deadpan type character where he has to be 100% straight and everybody around him sort of like, but you're the human flying fish. So it actually have him accomplish things and people sort of just being like, but, 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 but you're the human flying fish. And I, I think that you play off his being underestimated and you let him like, you know, how it, Jeff Johns made a big point of having Aquaman be divorced from 
his uh, the ridicule that he's faced over the years, mm-hmm. being the ridiculous Aqua character and stuff. And so he's like really hard sold the trident, and I'm tough, and bullets bounce off of me. And I think that with the human flying fish, it should be a situation where he just sort of doesn't so much take ownership of the ridiculousness, but it's like he's cool enough to where it doesn't matter to him, and he's just going to do the job and. He doesn't care how he looks. He's got the gill lungs, and he he can fly, and he can do things that Aquaman can't, and maybe be completely oblivious to how bad he looks. Like someone who thinks he's really cool, sort of like a uh, an Ash uh, from the Evil Dead, where, you know, I don't know if you've been watching that series, but he's, you know, old fat guy who's a clumsy flirt, and he just thinks he's the coolest thing on God's green earth. And I think that maybe you play him the same way, where he's just oblivious to it, and in fact, he thinks that he's way cooler. He's bold. He's wearing power colors. He doesn't just uh, cop to what everybody tells him he needs to be. He's going to be his own man, a human flying fish. So that's kind of the way I'd play it, I think. So what's his objective then? What does he actually want? He's, like, a, he's a professional. How, how do you describe his, what, what is his crime, his criminal MO? What's his, is he just a, a pirate? Is he a scavenger? Like how do you, what makes, the, what makes him different from the other Aquaman rogues? Well, that's what's great is, with the other Aquaman rogues, it's so personal. There's such passion, and it's this big drama, all this operatic conflict. And so one of the great things with the human flying fish is he just wants money. He just wants money, and he wants – if you go to Scipio's blog, The Absorbiscon, Scipio likes to ascribe – homosexual leanings to Silver Age characters and, you know, the subtext can be there if you want to read it. And so he wanted, he liked playing around in, in a little story he wrote told from the human flying fish's perspective of his love for Dr. Krill and the, and the extraordinary bravery it took for him to be willing to take on this unnecessary surgery and live this exotic life of crime that's doesn't make sense, but maybe it would make sense for him. So whether he's in it for the love or he's in it for the money, it, it should all be about him. It shouldn't have anything to do with Aquaman. Aquaman is just this guy that keeps turning up and getting in his way, I think. And having him go up at Aquaman from a completely different direction than most of Aquaman's foes. I like that. I think making him more like a classic Spider-Man villain in the, in the approach to his stories. I can dig that. I can see that. Yeah, I can see the parallel. How would you rate the human flying fish against the other known Aquaman villains. There are more than two? We can throw in Fisherman and Scavenger if you want. Okay. Now, actually, the thing is, is it's easy to go after Aquaman for his rogues gallery because his Silver Age rogues aren't the strongest. and He tended to do a lot of the same stuff that everybody else did. But I think that there's been a real effort, really since the 70s, but mostly in the 80s and 90s, where they tried to build up his rogues gallery. And he's actually got a lot of reasonably cool characters Somebody just has to reuse them again. Uh, Aquaman has a, a failing that a lot of heroes have where a writer comes in and crafts a new character for him to fight and then nobody else ever picks him up and uses him again. And if you go to Piranha Man or Shriveldress, what do you call him? You go to the Thirst. A lot of these characters were created to be big bads for various Aquaman runs, Thanatos, and just reuse them. Just remind people that these characters exist. They have significant power. They're often pretty well designed. So, you know, all you have to do is actually bother to research the run and find out what other people did and, and reuse these characters uh, he doesn't really have that bad of a rogues gallery but i think that in the midst of all those big bads you need to have somebody who's a little bit ridiculous and who's more fun that, and that's who, what the role i think this guy could play but geez louise we've talked for like 20 minutes about the human flying fish what about the sensational character find of 1984 <laughs> i don't need to tell you who slipknot is 
You know Slipknot as well as you know the last son of Krypton and the dynamic duo. You know his real name is Christopher Weiss. You know he first appeared in Fury of Firestorm 28. You know he's got one of the coolest gimmicks and sweetest costumes of any DC villain. A costume that manages all at once to combine the dashing elegance of the dread pirate Roberts with the intense sexuality of the Pulp Fiction gimp. You can keep your power girl with her boob window. Give me a murderous rogue with twin rib windows that show just a hint of side boob. During the Millennium event, Slipknot was made part of the Suicide Squad. In issue 9, he accompanied Rick Flagg Jr., Deadshot, Bronze Tiger, Mark Shaw, Karen Grace, and Captain Boomerang on a mission to destroy a Manhunter temple in the Louisiana Bayou. Slipknot, however, doubted the truthiness of Amanda Waller's threat that if he deserted the team, his wristband would explode. Captain Boomerang convinced Slipknot that the explosive was just a bluff, so the first chance he got, Slipknot made a break for it. And the bomb promptly exploded. (laughs) This is why nobody has ever liked Captain Boomerang. Slipknot survived the explosion. I mean, come on, it's Slipknot. But he did lose an arm, which kind of put a damper on his whole choking gimmick, but that didn't stop him from appearing in everyone's favorite limited series, Identity Crisis, in the issue right before his arch-nemesis Firestorm is killed in action. Issue 9 of Suicide Squad is collected in the trade paperback Suicide Squad Volume 2 that I mentioned during the in-stock trades recommendations. So, what was your introduction to the... I guess the closest parallel would be the Galactus-level threat, the Loki of the DC Universe that is Slipknot. I was introduced to him as part of the grand slam of villains, all of the magnificent villains of Firestorm, all those, you know powerhouses of enormous magnitude to face up against a man who can transmogrify materials. So, of course, the man who's the master of hemp rope it, it, you know you can't just you got to say his name amongst the greats Tweedledee and Tweedledum the prankster Captain Wonder the top Dr. Ubix a guy who's comparable with virtually any Martian Manhunter villain um, so anyway, so I saw him in a collective of his villains as part of a crossover with Blue Devil. The fire, I was collecting Blue Devil at that time, and I hadn't had a lot of exposure to Firestorm. I think I may have seen him on the Super Friends cartoon or something. But really, it was my introduction to Firestorm and his world through the Blue Devil crossover. Slipknot, I don't recall having a lot to do in there, but he was a very cool-looking character. And I think his next major appearance, for me, was the Suicide Squad issue you were talking about, that tie into Millennium. He actually looked a lot better than a lot of the other guys who are mainstays of the book. I would definitely put... Slipknot's costume against Captain Boomerang's any day of the week, and then his arm gets blown off. You know, he is the guy who owns the potential uh, for extreme bodily harm that Amanda Waller swore to when these guys put on these bands and bracelets that were supposed to keep them within the field of battle or else. He tested the or else, and he got blown up. And because he lost his arm, it gave him an opportunity to upgrade his powers a little bit beyond roping things. Um, and maybe get like a cybernetic arm or something. But uh, so I saw him there and then I've seen him pop up in various places since then. And he's always cool because he hangs people and people who hang people are automatically cooler than people who don't hang people unless they're like white supremacists. That is the notable exception. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, their costumes are pretty freaking lame. You know, there's no details. There's no form. They really need some more color. They look kind of boxy. They look sort of like those little napkins that you put on a proper dinner table. So, yeah, the clan really need to work on their gear. 
And you've brought this up, and I think as soon as you mentioned it, almost everybody from the fire and water community sort of nodded and said, yeah, that would make a lot more sense. Why is Slipknot, of all people, a Firestorm rogue? Wouldn't he be better served for a more street-level hero like a Green Arrow, or really anybody who doesn't deal with the capacity to like change things at a molecular level? You really need a certain level of villain to be a, a major threat, but Slipknot, if he had been one of a handful of Green Arrow rogues, then you're talking a different level of character. Yeah, and that's something that bugged me too, is Deathstroke is really, if you read his his original stories, this is a solo character who was like Captain America amped up to the nth degree, and then he's supposed to fight Green Arrow, who doesn't fight entire teams. I think that maybe they should have gone up a little bit slowly with the power levels, using people like Javelin, as opposed to going all the way up to Deathstroke, because all that did to me is make me respect Deathstroke less, not respect Green Arrow more. Let me ask the all-important question as pertains to Slipknot's costume. What do you think about the side boob revealing circles in his costume? Sexy. <laughs> no, I, there you go. <laughs> no I, I like it when – I. for me, you know, I grew up with Cockrum's costume designs. So for mm-hmm. me, I would see a dude in thigh-high boots and it's like, yeah, that's really cool. And I realize now that, no, that's just kinky. But I do like it when you've got a male character that will take on attributes that aren't necessarily masculine to kind of differentiate them. And I think it looks really cool. I like the big billowing sleeves. I don't know how that affects his hangmanship, but it looks cool. And I just, I freaking love how his mask incorporates the noose so that the noose opens up around his mouth. It's just Mm -hmm. such a neat looking costume. And he's another guy who's got a lot of custom figures out there and they all look freaking fantastic. But his Marvel parallel would be the Constrictor, where they're characters that aren't very well regarded, but I don't know anybody who doesn't look at these guys and go, those guys are boss. So I'd like to see them actually be bosses rather than just look boss sometime. Now, with the mostly black costume, the weird revealing flesh along the sides that sometimes, depending on how he's drawn, you can see his nipples, the whole rope theme. Is there a bondage S&M quality to this character? Duh. (laughs) Okay, that's the right answer. What you're saying is he should be a Wonder Woman villain. Okay, but now if you make him a Wonder Woman villain, is he too similar to her in motif? Because of the rope and her lasso of truth, are they too much equals or parallels? Well, the problem is one would kick his butt. He'd be having the same problem that he has with Firestorm. So I think it's a good idea to borrow a little bit from the concepts without actually having him interact with that character. I acknowledge, but then we move on. So folks, speaking of Slipknot, as you know, next year we are getting a Suicide Squad movie, or as I like to call it, The Adventures of Slipknot and the cast of Batman Arkham City. Do you know who's playing Slipknot in the movie, Frank? That would be Adam Beach, best known for Flags of Our Fathers, Wind Talkers, Cowboys and Aliens, and Smoke Signals. That's right. And despite having a fairly Anglo-waspy name like Adam Beach, the actor is actually a First Nation from our great Canadian brothers up north. And if you listen to a recent episode of the Marvel Superheroes podcast with Siskoid, your wild agent of Marvel, uh, he could tell you that the First Nation is essentially the Canadian equivalent of what we would call our Native American Indians. Uh, this is in his first superhero role. He played Turok in the Son of Stone video game. Also, he played Squanto, and I just love saying Squanto. <laughs> I found this casting particularly interesting because I had previously, a couple years ago, fan cast Adam Beach in a Firestorm movie as another villain. 
but not Slipknot. Black bison. I thought you would be appropriate for, yeah, Black Bison. Because Black Bison. Because Black Bison, right. Uh, we're, so, we're, the, we're the typical fans where we're not going to cast an actor to play Lex Luthor unless they're already bald. So. Exactly. His inclusion, I've got to assume they're going to call back to Suicide Squad issue 9, that famous story. I do not believe this character is going to be, be make any appearances in other movies outside of this Suicide Squad. What do you think? Yeah, it's kind of hard to go. Okay, you've got Will Smith, Marco Roby, Jared Leto, Adam Beach. You know, let's be honest, it's really not politically correct to kill the black guy anymore, but the native guys don't really have as much of a voice on Twitter, so I think that the native guy is going to get it whacked. I mean, it, it, it'll be a powerful scene. I mean, if they have the gall, the guts to kill off a character like Slipknot this early in their cinematic universe, then... That's Warner Brothers saying, hey, we'll do anything. Maybe there's just like a trademark dispute with the band. <laughs> He'll be the major big bad for Arrow Season 5. Hashtag not your Billy soul. I don't think we've actually talked about it. What do you think about some of the other casting choices in the Suicide Squad movie? I think that uh, Cara Delevingne is going to die immediately after Adam Beach. I mean, I, th- I think they're perfectly fine casting choices. I'm curious to see how many of these guys are going to make it out on the other end, how many of them are going to actually appear in multiple movies. I've been hearing now that the first Batman movie might feature Will Smith's Deadshot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do like that Deadshot is a character that has risen his profile so much over the years, and uh, it's really based solely on the quality of his representation across the various Suicide Squad series. And that includes the Keith Giffen series, so quit slagging on that, guys. It's actually really good. Should I go back me up on this? I like seeing a character that rises up based on quality as opposed to being like something like a publisher incentive or something. Their initiative. Uh, <coughs> Deadpool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He did, came up from nothing. Suicide Squad was not a big book. This is just a guy who's had so many cool stories written about him, and he's got such a great look. Marshall Rogers' costume design is awesome. And while they're not 100% translating that to the screen, enough of it makes it to where he looks very scary. He looks very lethal. I would be interested in seeing this guy tangle with Batman for a whole movie. I'm actually surprisingly interested in Suicide Squad. While I like the concept, I'm not a big fan of the direction that DC's taking with the book, where they're pushing more and more of their star players. And so when they they said that they were going to take that concept and move it to the screen. I wasn't that excited, but I like everything I've seen. I like the first trailer, which is not something I can say for most comic book movie trailers these days, especially. They rush those things out and they're, they, you end up with this tepid response. I thought they did a great job cutting this one. I'm most excited to see Killer Croc on screen. Croc has always been one of my favorite Batman villains. There's a little bit more of the Eduardo Risso Broken City design in there than I would care for. I'd like him to be a little mm-hmm. bit greener, but otherwise he looks boss and I think that Killer Croc has enough name power, maybe not Slipknot's caliber, but maybe enough to where he'll be able to survive this movie and do some other stuff. So I'd love to see him in a Batman movie as well. I hope you're wrong about the Enchantress because, honestly, I'm more interested in her character than I am in Harley right now at this point. Um, You mean female Deadpool? Yeah. I like Will Smith as an actor, and I think if DC was going to get him and use him in a movie – With all of the hate and all of the, not even hate, but just the apathy towards Green Lantern after that movie came and flopped, I think if they had said, hey, Will Smith, Jon Stewart, the new Green Lantern, I think everybody who basically dismissed that franchise would have kind of said, hang on, that's interesting, and you could have brought them back. 
And yeah, Deadshot has been steadily increasing in popularity, but I also think it's a character that almost any actor can play. I actually, I really like the actor who they've cast to play Rick Flagg. He was in the TV show The Killing. I think he would have been a great Deadshot. I think he's, that's much more in his wheelhouse. And I'm afraid that with the casting of Will Smith, they're going to make him an anti-hero. They're going to play down his suicidal nature and just kind of give him this sort of haunted backstory with his daughter and make him somebody that you root for. Um, I now, think you could keep that, Death Wish. I think because uh, you've seen that to some degree in, in other Will Smith films. Uh, I Am Legend comes to mind where there's a guy who continues mm-hmm. to survive because he's good at it, not because he necessarily wants to. And I think Smith wants to explore his dark side a little bit more in movies. He's just not willing to go as far as, say, a Django Unchained where you're dealing with some really controversial, heavy material. But I think he does have that desire to do something a little darker. I mean, this is the guy who was in Hancock. And that was a really dark script. The original version of that script was on the blacklist. I think it cost too much money and they kind of made it a little bit lighter fare, but that's still a fairly dark character. I don't know that Smith wants to play the classic dun-da-da-dun kind of heroes as much anymore, and I like seeing him branch out because I'm tired of seeing him play those wise-cracking young kid mooch roles. They're not really for him anymore. I like to see him do something a little bit heavier, and I think that with a character like Deadshot, you need to have a big star to let people know that this character is a big deal. I also really don't want to see Will Smith play Jon Stewart, so that's also a huge motivation in my being gung-ho about being Deadshot. Oh, I think he'd be great. Who, do, who would you rather see for that type of role? Virtually anybody. I can't forget that Will Smith is on the screen. I'll have an easier time with Deadshot, where with Jon Stewart, I think that it would just be too much Will Smith. And I think, too, after the Ryan Reynolds debacle, they'd be playing into that. I, I think that they'd probably need to get somebody who isn't as much of a household name and uh, somebody who could become Jon Stewart the way somebody like Chris Evans became Captain America, where they kind of build themselves through the role rather than dominating the role. And I kind of wonder if DC has that concern or that approach. With the casting of Ben Affleck as Batman, I don't know if there's ever going to be a moment where I'm watching a movie with him and not thinking that that's Ben Affleck playing Bruce Wayne. But Yeah, but then you've got Henry Cavill, who's definitely not you know a name brand yet either. So uh, now I do think that Warner Brothers believes in the star system a lot more than somebody like Marvel Studios, in part just because they have the option because Marvel Studios had to lowball their budgets as much as they could, so they couldn't afford a Ben Affleck. But I, I, I do think they like their star characters, but at the same time, you got Gal Gadot playing Wonder Woman. This is not a household name, and she's going to be in a movie that's filming uh, next year. So I think they're going to get the best of both, hopefully. Uh, but uh, clearly with someone who's big as Batman, there's a guy who's always been played with the exception of Christian Bale by household name actors. And I guess they don't really want to get away from that. Plus I think Bale dominated that role so much in the minds of a lot of fans, not this fan, but a lot of fans um, that they need to have uh, somebody who can kind of move people past the Nolan era. So I think they felt an imperative to get a big star for Batman to progress from that point. So let's say Aquaman gets a second movie, a sequel. Who's playing human flying fish in that? You're really putting me on the spot. There's so many names. I mean, think about your criteria for the character, the way you're envisioning the character as a sort of alpha, egocentric, sort of like uber-confident despite horrible flaws and, and no obvious reason to be confident. Ryan Gosling. <laughs> this is a guy who will never be in a, your superhero movie, he, but he, he's shown recently, like on Saturday Night Live, that he's got good comedic chops. 
So seeing somebody like him just completely deadplan this character and seeing the uh, ambivalence in the audience from you finally got Ryan Gosling in a costume and he's a human flying fish, <laughs> I, I think that may be the way to go. I swear that's, that's why I want Justin Timberlake to play Booster Gold. I can get behind that. I just want the audience to go, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Excuse us while we take a moment to thank our manufacturers. Do you want to hear the origin of Superman or Batman? Of course not. You're listening to a geek culture podcast. You know the origins of Superman and Batman. You've always known them. Your unborn grandchildren know the origins of Superman and Batman. But what about Guy Gardner, Blue Beetle, or the Phantom Stranger? What about Firestorm, Sandman, or the Golden Age Fury? Those are just a few of the stories covered in the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comic published by DC in the 1980s. Each episode of the Secret Origins Podcast features me, Ryan Daly, and an all-star collection of guest hosts revealing or revisiting the legends of the DC superheroes and villains. And if you're already sick of hearing my voice on this promo, the good news is at least 50% of the talking on the Secret Origins podcast is done by a terrific guest from the podcast and blogging community. So check out the Secret Origins podcast, available on iTunes and at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com. Director Fury, the internet is besieged with lame, lifeless podcasts. What we need is a hard-charging, foul-mouthed band of brothers with chemistry, big brains on comics, and personality. Personality goes a long way. What we need is the Marvel Superheroes Podcast. I'm the Legal Machine. Diablo Frank. And I am Mr. Fix-It. The Marvel Superheroes have arrived! Nick, internet radio is saved! Get this mother podcast off mother iTunes. The Marvel Superheroes podcast can also be found on Shout Engine, Stitcher, the Internet Archive, and on Rolled Spine Podcasts blogs. Have you been following uh, The Flash and the appearances of Firestorm on that show? I have. I am a few episodes behind on Flash, but I think I'm fairly caught up. I have seen, finally, the episode that introduced the new uh, Firestorm component that is Jefferson Jackson. And I really like that. I like that a lot more than I thought I would. I like that this version of Jefferson Jackson actually feels more like the way Ronnie Raymond was in the comics. He wasn't a mechanical engineer. He was a jock who sort of kind of lost his shot and was going to end up living a a pretty unglamorous blue-collar life. But through this chance horrific accident, gets the opportunity to be more, to do something noble and heroic with his life, with the proper guidance. So I really like that character. This feels somewhat like a course correction and a way of incorporating the best elements of both Ronnie and Jason from the comics. Yeah, see, I I haven't watched any of the uh, Kreisberg shows uh, except for Supergirl. That's the one that got me started trying to watch these shows. Um, So I can't talk from firsthand experience. I know the shows through recaps online and from Shag and Rob talking about it on the podcast. I didn't respond well to what I saw of Robbie ML. I don't have anything against the fella, but he definitely plays into all the stereotypes I hold against Firestorm. Uh, which the character, uh, the Robbie uh, Robbie Raymond character, I've never really gravitated toward because exactly the reasons why you described. He is the jock and he's the guy who doesn't really have a lot to bring to the table before he gets the powers. 
The thing that I did like, though, about how the show was handling him was that they came up with a better explanation for how this whole Firestorm thing got started than the ridiculous trying to impress a girl, going to a demonstration, end up you know, involved with terrorists and the uh, plant gets blown up and all that kind of good stuff. I, I think it seems to work better for Robbie Amell to be a scientist himself, to have been working with Martin Stein so that they have some commonality. But then you can shift those powers over to Jackson, uh, which – it's it continuity with the Jerry Conway series and just the simple fact that it's, it's a black hero. I'm already going to be more open to him just because of the underrepresentation and because Firestorm hasn't made as much of an impression on the public consciousness. He really hasn't been seen by the general public since the Super Friends cartoon because he didn't appear in JLA, right? The Justice League cartoon? No, he never appeared in Justice League Unlimited. Yeah. And listening to Jerry Conway talk about the character, and this is his creation where he's feels like if you get somebody like Jason Rush who's already a smart, well-together guy, then what do you need Martin Stein for? It completely alters the dynamic that the fans have gravitated towards. So when you have a somewhat similar dynamic between Stein and Jackson, it worked still in that Jerry Conway wheelhouse, that flavor that he gave the character. So you know, I'm, I'm happy for it. I, I know that they had introduced the Jason Rush, and for what I saw of him, I wasn't very impressed with you know, how he was being handled on the show. And I'm glad they didn't go that way. I think that ultimately they made the right decision. And it seems like he's playing well with these other characters in this universe that they're building out of the Flash television show. That's sort of where I was going to with the course correction, because the reason the characters within Firestorm, when you break down away from the costume and away from the powers, what makes that character interesting at all is the contrast, the different voices between Professor Stein and whoever is in the driver's seat, whether it's Ronnie or somebody else. And the way the first season played it up with the Ronnie version in the show, he was too similar. They were both brilliant scientific minds in their own right. And when they clashed, when they were kind of fighting and bickering with each other, it felt a little bit forced. But now you have a clear opposite. These guys would never be in the same room together, Jackson and Professor Stein. They're worlds apart, and now they have to come together. That's what makes Firestorm interesting. That's what I've always liked about that character. Well, that and also there are things uh, – I'm a big believer that you've got different mediums and certain characters are going to play better to some mediums than other. Where Firestorm in the comics has never been a big thing for me, seeing that kind of interaction, the bickering and the uh, attempts to whip stuff up at the last minute, uh, showing that it isn't as easy on as it is on paper to control the powers that Firestorm has, I think that works way better in live action than it does in comics for me at least. Oh, I, I agree with that. And I, it's one of the reasons why, you know, when Shag used to say there would never be a Firestorm movie, I think he's a great fit for a movie if DC took a chance on him because thematically he is the closest thing they have to a Spider-Man in terms of that underachieving kid given the chance at greatness. And, I mean, it's, it's built in the character's DNA. That's what Jerry Conway had in mind when he wrote the character. So I think... You could do a lot of cool stuff with it with that same sort of ingenuity and that, you know, desperately scrambling for for the answer to save the day and using that sort of scientific acumen and making science cool again. That's that is I'm going to go on this little tangent, but I have to because we're we're here. My biggest problem with the Flash TV show is that Barry should be as smart, if not smarter, than the people he's getting advice from. And they use the Star Labs crew and all those people. And I like Cisco, I like Caitlin, but they made him too reliant on their stuff. And we're never going to get that moment in the show when Barry says, Flash fact. 
because he knows the science and he should. And I really wish he could move beyond them and not rely on them for expositional purposes. I understand why you need something like that for the TV show, because you can't just have the superhero talking to himself the whole time. But you can have Oliver Queen relying on his Oracle support structure, but Flash and Supergirl really shouldn't need that. Well, I I would actually argue the the counter view... The Flash they've got on television is clearly a hybrid of Barry and Wally. He's much more Wally than Barry. And I found Wally to be a very limited character because he lacked that science background. There really wasn't anything special about Wally West except that his uncle helped him to get superpowers. And so he was defined entirely by being a superhero, which doesn't give me enough as a reader to latch on to. I just don't find the guy who's just a hero 24-7 all that interesting. And it really doesn't work for television where there are certain formulas where – I mean clearly the, the Berlandi Kreisberg shows have a formula where you've got a solo hero who is surrounded by all these people that help them. Mm-hmm. But I think that what you're talking about, you would never have them say flashbacks. In the context of the TV show, you need this whole support crew. But there is a bit of a, a contamination of that group because of what they did with the reverse flash. And you know, at some point, uh, Vibe will probably go off and do his own thing. And I can kind of see almost where Barry would progress in his role as the Flash and in his role as a police investigator until he becomes a soloist. And you could actually end the series with flashbacks with him doing everything that he used to do as part of a group on his own. So I could actually see that being the end point for that character because that's one of the problems I have with people complaining about the Supergirl TV show is he wanted her to be incredibly competent from jump. And, you know, you look at Smallville, it took 10 years for Superman to get to the point where Kara was like halfway through the pilot of her first episode. She needs to have a chance to kind of build, to progress, to become the heroine that she wants to be. And if you give her that from jump, which is something that Barry Allen had in the comics, he was pretty much 100% the Flash, the iconic Flash from his first appearance. So you don't have any place to go from there. And especially in a medium like television, you need to allow your characters to have arcs and develop. So I don't have a problem with her having support staff and I understand where the flash will need it now, but he could progress to the point where he's a soloist and that could be the movie flash to some degree, you know, or in some manner. And I'm one of the biggest voices or loudest voices against the DEO thing on Supergirl. If I hadn't been watching Arrow and the Flash, it might not bother me as much. But as soon as I saw it in the pilot episode, I was like, okay, this is the only way Greg Berlanti and Andrew Kreisberg write these shows now. It's, it's this formula. But So, uh, yeah, logically, I understand the point that a young Kara should have this kind of built-in support structure because of how powerful she is. It would be reckless and negligent if she didn't have some sort of check and balance for her. But part of it is I just – I don't like the visual aesthetic of the DEO. I haven't really been impressed by Hank Haywood as the character who's just grumpy. Now, of course, he's had a pretty significant dramatic reveal. I'm interested to see where that goes. I also I don't like Kara's sister. That actress does nothing for me. She mostly just annoys me. I am much, much, much more interested in Kara's day job working for Catco and all of those characters. I would rather spend more time with them, even though I wish the Winslow shot character, he should be Jimmy. I mean, he is the Jimmy Olsen character, so I wish they would just call him Jimmy. Did you ever read any of the uh, Chase comics? Uh, no. Here's the thing. I, I, I'm a Supergirl fan for most of my comic reading career, but especially uh, from Peter David onward, I read that series, and I, I've always loved the character of Supergirl. But one thing that the show has made 
a point of, of demonstrating that's interesting to me is that a failing that the series has always had is Supergirl's weak supporting cast. She has characters kind of come and go in her life, but nobody really sticks around long enough to build the kind of relationships that most other major superheroes have. I think in part because Supergirl spent so many years as a backup feature where they didn't really have the room or the need to develop a big cast around her. So I found that with the television series, the introduction of the Alex Danvers character, whose name I find unfortunate, I just don't like there being a Lex on the show at all because it just it's hard not to make some sort of a parallel with Lex Luthor. But her relationship with Kara, I think, is something that would be great in the comics. It's something I think that the comics have needed the entire time there have been Supergirl comics. So I really enjoy that character. And as somebody who read the Chase series and followed their involvement in the DC universe, I'm very into the DEO. I, I've, I've liked them ever since they were first created. And I like that clearly the creators have read those stories. Just the involvement of, uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to worry about spoiling it because everybody knows everybody knew an hour after it happened on the internet the revelation that john jones is part of the deo that's actually part of the comics that's that was in marsh manhunter comics that was in um um, some of the comics written by dc johnson the co-creator of the deo so they obviously have an investment in actually reading and adapting the actual comics they're not just going off and doing their own thing so I'm getting basically three TV shows I want out of Supergirl. I love Supergirl, and I love what they're doing with her universe. I'm a big fan of the DEO, and then I'm getting my Martian Manhunter show at the same time. So it's a sort of a perfect storm for me. As far as the wind shot thing goes, that character is a creepy stalker dude. I think that he's going to have a heel turn. I think that they did that on purpose. I think that they've got the quasi-Jimmy Olsen in there because Jimmy Olsen is a character that has continued to appear in Superman media because he was in the radio show. And I don't think they've ever updated or adapted that character for modern times. They haven't even bothered since the 1970s because I think that the the uh, fellow who played him in the, the Donner movies, I, don't, I thought that was a terrible character and not a, at all interesting to me. So I think that Winshot is playing that idea of who Jimmy Olsen should be and I think that Jimmy Olsen would be kind of a creepy little nerd these days if you played him the way that he was played in the old days. And I like that the show has made a point of showing that Jimmy is a guy who's had all these adventures with Superman. And I like to think that uh, there, there's some sort of canon in this show where he had Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen solid adventures where he did the Jack Kirby stuff where he's getting involved with Cadmus and doing all this cool stuff. And he grew up to be a man. He grew up to be something like a hero, but also recognizing that in a, in a place like Metropolis, he could not keep up with how fantastic that city was, the, the kind of enormous challenges that Superman has to face. And what he ended up doing is he kept putting himself in danger and hitting his signal watch and Superman had to come save him. So he had to get out of that city. So he comes to Supergirl with this enormous weight of, of Superman behind him and it gives weight to the Supergirl story because they're both in similar positions. They're both in the shadow of Superman. They've both seen the positives and minuses of that association and Jimmy Olsen's trying to figure out who he is as a grown man who's not a cub reporter anymore and I very much prefer that Jimmy Olsen. I think that you're getting the opportunity to see what a very overly faithful uh, take on, on Jimmy Olsen is through when and then you're seeing where Jimmy needs to be, the character that he needs to become to be relevant in the 21st century through uh, McCod Brooks's portrayal. See, intellectually, that makes sense, but I just I can't separate that. For me, Jimmy Olsen is the power nerd. He's always going to be in contrast to Superman. For me, he the, the adult version of him would be like a Michael Sarah or like Zach Braff in Scrubs. 
And I think when I see Makad Brooks, this beefy, hunky, strong, powerful-looking actor playing that character, it's sort of like Eric Bana playing Bruce Banner in the first Hulk movie. He doesn't need to turn into a monster. He already looks like he could kick ass as a superhero himself. And for the, that, that doesn't work necessarily as the supporting role for who's supposed to be standing right next to the actual legitimate super-powered person. But see, what I like is that Jimmy Olsen seems so superfluous in Superman stories over the last 30, 40 years, where by moving to the Supergirl series and becoming a love interest, it reinvigorates the character and gives him a new role. So he's not just trapped being the same character year after year. And I think he needed that. Maybe for comic book fans, but for sort of mainstream casual people who have heard the name Jimmy Olsen. I don't know if that necessarily tracks. I think they would want the what they recognize for the character. I think they want the comforting, familiar notion that they've had. But that's the thing is that character doesn't bring anything to Superman or Supergirl. And I think that the Windshot character is demonstrating that. I've grown to despise that character over the course of the first half of the season of Supergirl. Uh, he is a creepy little weasel guy who for some reason thinks that he deserves a Supergirl. And when she doesn't think it back, he denigrates her. I just feel like that's who Jimmy Olsen would be today if you were continuing on the trajectory you described. And I think that people – want the the familiar but they don't necessarily like is as a concept but if you actually gave it to them i don't think they would have a much of appreciation for that jimmy olsen on the show and i think that wind shots demonstrating that all right well agree to disagree <laughs> are we still talking about firestorm <laughs> uh let's segue to what shag lovingly refers to as the guy who talks to fish how did you get introduced to the character Ah, the same way I would have been introduced to Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman and Robin. I think it would have been the super friends and the superpowers. It's just he's – I've always known who Aquaman was. Um, Now, because I was a child of the 80s and kind of coming into my own maturity and and developing my own tastes in the 90s, I was subject to stand-up comedians who used Aquaman as their go-to punchline. So, especially, yeah, I, I did think he was a joke for the longest time. I think the first Aquaman comic I legitimately bought was probably the Zero Hour issue Zero tie-in, which was him with the harpoon hand. Um, and I thought, oh, this looks cool. This looks like a badass version of of Aquaman. This is hardcore Aquaman. And I read the issue, and I was like, mm, this doesn't feel right. Maybe Aquaman shouldn't be hardcore and badass. And at the time, I thought that was a problem with the character. You know, when I looked at them trying to make Superman or Aquaman or these characters harder-edged and darker and edgier, I thought that didn't fit for the characters. But I also thought that was a problem with the characters. And it would take me another decade before I realized, it's like, no, the characters are fine. The problem was my perspective or just we weren't in sync because what I wanted wasn't what those characters are at their core. But since then, I've, I mean, yeah, for the last 15 years, I would say Aquaman has been one of my top five DC heroes. I just, I I love the character. For me, 
Uh, I grew up when Super Friends was still on first-run television. <laughs> uh, they were in syndication, but I didn't get to see them on a daily basis, and I wasn't ever somebody who was going to get up early on a Saturday morning. So I actually think my, my introduction to Aquaman, although I, I could never pinpoint a specific point because, like you, he's just always been there. But it was probably the solo Aquaman cartoon series because that did run on one of my local UHF channels in the afternoons. And I, I thought he was pretty cool. He rode around on his seahorse, and he fired his water balls, and he had a kind of a cool supporting gas, not particularly different from any other cartoon series of that type, but he just seemed like a good guy and I didn't have any problems with him. And I, I didn't notice that he was sort of useless on Super Friends until comedians like Dave Chappelle would point it out. Um, but I didn't have a particular passion for Aquaman either. He was just one of those guys that I knew was one of the big iconic heroes, but he wasn't one of the ones I necessarily gravitated towards. And what happened was in the early 90s, Peter David was going to take over Aquaman. I was a big fan of his. I, I was enjoying his work, especially on The Incredible Hulk at that point. And so I got very excited about the prospect of Peter David coming onto the book. And there was this big lag, too, because they canceled the series. And then it was a little while before they had the Time and Tide miniseries. And then it was a little while further before he finally started the ongoing. So in that time period, I figured, well, let me brush up on this character since I'm definitely going to be a fan of his with Peter David's writing him. And I started buying all these back issues. And that's when I developed a great love for Aquaman. In particular, I loved the Legend of Aquaman one shot that uh, Keith Giffen, Robert Lauren Fleming, Kurt Swan, and Eric Shanauer did, where they basically turned Aquaman into Tarzan of the Porpoise. Mm hmm. But uh, it, I thought it was a really strong origin story. I enjoyed that aspect of the character. I was enjoying the back issues I was buying, like the Steve Skeets, Jim Aparo stuff where they got into he's, – he's one of the only heroes that had a wife and a kid and the kid gets murdered by his arch enemy. And it's like, oh my god, this guy's been through so much stuff. And I just – I really dug – I liked his nobility. I liked the look. I, I really started to like the costume and I loved how nobody else out there was orange and green. Um, I, I liked how he was not like Superman power class. So many of the DC heroes are at this extreme where they're either the plain or the costume detective Batman types or they're the world pushing, you know, Superman types. And I like that he fell in this middle place where he was way more powerful than a human, but he didn't have to have such big over-the-top adventures as other DC heroes. So, and I especially liked uh, Sean McLaughlin's series, Lachlan, sorry, the Sean McLaughlin series, where they were de dealing with a lot of the emotional issues that the character had never addressed previously. His wife had gone nuts and tried to kill him. His son was murdered. He never did uh, take uh, vengeance on Black Mana for that. And it did a great job of, of, but it was a quiet book. It was a mature book. And I, it just wasn't what audiences in the early 90s wanted. And then I read the Peter David book, and it was so stupid. I, I, I remember reading a Wizard article where he dropped one hint about what he was going to do as far as revi reworking Aquaman piranhas. And I thought that, oh, cool, he's going to be fighting off all these piranhas. He's get all you know, tore up, and you know, he's going to have to deal with that. And then when you see the actual story, a guy steals his power for five minutes and then pushes his hand into a puddle full of piranhas, and his hand gets eaten off. I thought that was such an a, a ignoble way of dealing with a, a hero. You're trying to build this guy up, and the first thing you do is you you amputate one of his body parts in a manner that makes him look completely incompetent. And I tried to read the Peter David series off and on throughout his run, and I think it's a situation uh, which I had a similar problem with Gail Simone and Wonder Woman, where you've got a writer that I really like that's really good at doing certain kinds of stories that have a, a long run on the wrong character, where they just don't quite fit with that character and even the better Peter David stuff I just it didn't resonate with me that wasn't the Aquaman I wanted I didn't want the long haired straggly guy I'd, I'd gotten into this noble king of the seas 
and that wasn't who this guy was writing. And uh, I've I've come back and forth on Aquaman over the years. I've read various runs. I actually really like another run that nobody cared about where John Arcudi and um, Pat Gleason was wrapping up his run on the book after he'd worked with Will Pfeiffer. And I've read that stuff. It's okay. But John Arcudi just had this great take where they understood that Aquaman is a little bit weird. His world has to be a little bit off, left of center. And I, I like when Aquaman's played where he's the straight man amidst a bunch of bizarre stuff happening and i loved what they were doing with sub diego uh, later on when tad williams did his very bizarre run on the book even though i didn't care for the arthur joseph curry take on aquaman i loved what he was doing with this greater world he was making the oceans a, a place of fantasy and whimsy and giving it uh, its own distinctive flavor versus say marvel's atlantis which was always this dark game of thronesy type place and so that's the aquaman i really like i like it when he is a little bit askew but he's the straight man he's uh, the guy who's like holding it down amidst all the weirdness and i like it when he's more of a uh spider-man power level where he's more of uh He's a guy who swims around, so he's a guy who should be able to see in three dimensions, think in three dimensions. He should fight in a different way than other heroes. He should move in a different way. He should have different priorities. And so, like, I tried to enjoy the Jeff Johns, Ivan Reese run. Art was gorgeous, but Johns was just so – it was so important for him to make Aquaman cool and make him work for mainstream audiences that it sort of alienated me because I wasn't looking for – the mainstream vanilla Aquaman, but I still have a love for that character. I, I love, like I said, I like I love everything about it. I love Mira. I love Aquababy. I love, well, I don't love Tempest, but I like Tempest as much as is humanly possible. To like such a terrible character as Garth. I enjoy that whole universe, and I I just want people to come at it from a different perspective than standard you know, aquatic superhero type stuff because that's sort of Namor's beat. And so that's why I'm a little wary of the Aquaman movie because I really think that it's going to end up being a Namor movie. It looks like they're going to try to do the very macho, aggressive take. But my understanding is he's going to appear in Batman vs. Superman and I probably will end up seeing it and I'm just kind of hoping for the best from that. It wouldn't surprise me if the Aquaman movie is very much like Thor, like the first Thor movie. Um, trying to make him a character who fits into both of these worlds um, and the struggle for sort of the kingdom. And I would love for it to be more like Avatar. I think you really need to immerse yourself in this subterranean world, this sub-aquatic realm that is just completely alien, unlike anything that we've ever seen before, really play up the fantasy. I think I think that's where characters like Aquaman and Ant-Man are misunderstood and sort of harshly criticized unfairly because how do you tell how do you use them effectively as crime fighters how do they stack up against spider-man and batman it's like well that's not the type of story you use with aquaman it's like he's not a crime fighter he's an adventurer you use him as the tarzan of the sea you use him for these different type of fantasy type of stories and People oftentimes can't separate their expectations for what a superhero is from what a urban vigilante is. They think the two are that that's the only type of hero that you can have, just because that's the most popular. And I just think they're going for the the barbarian that was popular because that was the version that they used in the Justice League Unlimited cartoon series. So they know that there is a fan base who likes that version of the character. But 
with everything that I see going on in the DC Cinematic Universe, there aren't a whole lot of things that I can say are objectively wrong, that they're getting this wrong. They're just not, for me, they're just leaving, they're going to a place I do not want to follow them. I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt. It's very difficult because I have not been given a lot of cause, especially with regards to DC's uh, or Warner Brothers' adaptations of the DC characters. I think a lot of it's going to come down to Jason Momoa, though, because he talked a lot when he was first cast about he wants to bring like some of his ancestral heritage to the character. He wants to bring some of his spirituality to the character. And while I look at Momoa with his beard and his long hair and I see Lobo, I see Kyle Drogo, he is an actor and he has the opportunity to play that character to where he may not physically resemble the Aquaman that I imagine, you know, from the comics, but if he can get to the emotional truth of that character, and he is going to be playing an Aquaman that does still have a mirror in his life, that does have Ocean Master and does have that Lord draw from. I don't want to see him play Namor necessarily, although I like Namor too. And if I can, if I can get past the cognitive dissonance, if he plays Namor, maybe I'll get a good Namor movie out of it. But what I'd like to see is for him to buck expectations and play Aquaman the spirit of Aquaman and it won't necessarily matter what he looks like so long as he gets the, the feel of those characters right. But one thing I do want to say too is that I agree with you that you need to play around with Atlantis. I, I also agree with Rob where most of the bad Aquaman stuff comes out of Atlantis being moored to that city. And I hope that with the emphasis that's been placed in recent years on the Silver Age origin, with him being a person who grew up near on the land, just near the water, who grew up with a surface parent and surface problems, I want to. One of the things I think defines Aquaman versus somebody like Namor is that he is one of us. He is a a Westerner. He's a person who's part of our modern world, and then he's introduced into these fantastic elements. But he has to bring his sensibilities with him, and I think that Aquaman gets lost when. He becomes a pure fantasy character when he's no longer the guy from our world who's in their world and he just becomes another one of these you know goofy high fantasy types which is something i have no great stomach for oh i agree i don't want him to be like an aragorn type of character i would rather him be the outsider who gets pulled into this realm but yeah have him be a guy who grew up on the shore who grew up on the beach and then throw him into the depths of the marianas trench and show us an alien culture that we've just we have never been able to experience before because of the technology and because of limited imagination. And I feel the same way with Wonder Woman too. As as much as it irks me to see Gal Gadot running around with that sword, when I hear that the Wonder Woman movie is going to start in World War One, an even earlier period than the comics ever did, when I hear that they're going to play up her being hundreds of years old, which was something that was a big part of the television series and something that I'm not as familiar with from the comics, but it gives her a very different perspective than other DC heroes, and it gives them an opportunity to make Wonder Woman really stand out in this new universe. I love the idea of her being a veteran of her being sort of the Captain America of the DCEU, as they're calling it. I complain a lot about the DC properties. I have a lot of reservations. I have, uh, I'm going to gripe uh, as much as I feel like if I take the time to watch this stuff and it doesn't live up to the expectations. But at the same time, I really I want a good one-on-one movie. I want a good Aquaman movie. I'm probably going to see both the question is, do I see that one time and then try to forget that I ever saw them, or do I actually give the opportunity to take them to my heart? I really hope that they give me that opportunity, and uh, it just remains to be seen. Warner Brothers needs 
franchises. They need the kind of money that they used to make uh, because the shareholders demand it. And I, I hope they understand that they're not going to get that by entertaining these small minds when it comes to these franchises that when you got a Harry Potter movie, then you don't need to turn Doctor Strange into the Matrix. When you've got uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, then you don't have to make Wonder Woman just somebody who runs around and stabs people. You can play into that fantasy element while also crossing over into period drama and doing different things. I, I hope that they understand that these properties have a built-in audience and you have to serve the desires of that audience while at the same time creating something new and making it work in this new medium. So you can't just entertain the, the 90s extreme take on these characters. You've got to look at their entire history and you've also got to make them work in their new medium. What do you think? Anything else that we need to touch on? I think we did good. What do you think? Let's uh, close this thing out. Frank, where can folks find you online? Well, by the time this episode drops, uh, my own podcast, uh, the Marvel Superheroes podcast, will have already dropped its 50th episode. And I think it's going to be a real humdinger. It has guests like Count Droncula, uh, my boys Illegal Machine and Mr. Fix-It, plus some surprises. And it's focused entirely on Captain America, one of my favorite superheroes of all time, possibly the number one, and a character that I haven't really addressed at length on the podcast. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and obviously I recommend that show in general. Uh, if you want to have something more DC-themed, I've got the Idle Head of Diablo podcast, where I've been celebrating the 60th anniversary of that character. And I'm very proud of the official 60th anniversary special that I put together for the character. And I've only put out part one so far, but it stands up on its own, and I'm looking forward to part two as well it's full of guest stars i've got interviews exclusive interview material with guys like howard shaken peter david gm demateus mike mccone carlo barbieri um, also i've taken internet sources and uh, pulled together interviews from podcasts and youtube so to really make something comprehensive it's been very time consuming very exhausting but i'm very proud of the work and i, I want to if nobody else is going to celebrate the 60th anniversary of martian manhunter I'm going to do my best to, to try to pick up that slack. Uh, I've also, in the new year, you should be seeing more of the Power of the Atom podcast, a nice little five to seven minute number where I really try to knock it out nice and quick, not one of these long shows like the one you're hearing right now. And uh, occasionally I'll knock something out on the DC Bloodlines podcast or other Rolls Fine podcasts. I'm not doing a lot of blogging anymore, but uh, if I haven't completely destroyed your interest in never hearing my voice again through this episode, I'd recommend going ahead and check those out. How about you, Count Drunkula? What have you got on the internet to pimp? Well, you can find me at the Secret Origins Podcast, which is available at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com, available on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find me at Dead Bath and Spies, a Star Wars podcast, which is on iTunes and deadbothandspies.blogspot.com. You can also occasionally hear me over at the G.I. Joe Headcast, uh, hosted by Aaron Moss with Kyle Benning and myself. That's going to be all for this episode. As always, you can leave feedback at firestormfan.com, theaquamanshrine.net. You can also leave feedback on fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com, and you can find art for this episode at fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. Thank you very much, folks, and as always, fan the flame and ride the wave. Aquaman man and Firestorm fighting crime together. Smell like them out or burn them up. Burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever they're in trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. Um, they stand for truth and justice on sea, at land, and air. Aquaman and Firestorm, they make us super pair. 
Firestorm, and Aquaman. Super Friends, friends Forever. forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Rob, I got I to let you know, if we don't make it out of this alive, I love you, man. <sighs> Shut up and chew through these ropes.